Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to my Bible study called Unstoppable on the Nature of the Gospel in the book of the Acts of the Apostle, the fifth book of the New Testament. And we're coming today to Acts chapters 21 and 22. And I want to show you two of the greatest questions that have ever been asked and answered in human history. These two questions can change your life, and I know that because they have changed mine. We'll get to those in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you that next year, on May the 31st of 2022, Lord willing, I'm going to take a group on an educational tour of the Holy Land. We're going to fly into Tel Aviv and spend 10 days in the Holy Land in Israel. And I'd like for you to go with me or to think about it if you've always wanted to go. I think that it may be a good time because travel is beginning to get back into operation, but maybe by then we can still avoid some of the crowds. And it's just a wonderful experience to spend several nights in the Galilee and to see what Jesus did in that incredible and beautiful part of the world where he lived for most of his life, and then to go down to Jerusalem and to study the holy city and the things around uh, Judea. It is a fabulous trip. I think you'll enjoy it. And if you would like more information, then just call Sherry Anderson at the Donaldson Fellowship, or you can email her. And Donaldson is spelled D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N. That's the name of our church, which is also the name of our community here in Nashville. And Sherry Anderson handles all of, that, all of the information relating to this trip to Israel. So text her, email her, call the church office, and just say that you'd like more information about the trip to Israel coming up between May 31st and June the 10th of 2022. Well, today I want to talk about questions. Anthony Robbins said, quality questions create a quality life. He said, successful people ask better questions, and as a result, they get better answers. Well, today I want to show you two questions that can create a quality life unlike any other. We're coming in our series of studies, Unstoppable, to the book of Acts, chapters 21 and 22. So if you're able to grab your Bible, then turn there with me, and here's where we are. I'll review for you very briefly. The Apostle Paul had finished his third missionary journey, and he was very eager to embark on his fourth one. But first, he wanted to go to Jerusalem and deliver the offering that he had collected for the impoverished Jewish Christians of Judea. I believe that Paul thought that if the Gentiles of Asia and of Europe sent a financial gift to the Jewish Christians of Judea, it could heal the rift that had developed between the Jewish church in Jerusalem and the Gentile church 
elsewhere. In those days, it was like there were two denominations, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and there was division or tension between them, and Paul wanted to take the gift from one and go to the other in Jerusalem, and maybe he didn't fully realize the state of things in the holy city. It was boiling over with political and religious emotion. Uh, Rebellion was in the air. This was... uh, just 15 years before the destruction of Jerusalem when the Jewish zealots rebelled against Roman rule. And so the Jewish people in Judea were tired of the brutality of Rome, and the Jews in Judea were frustrated with the growth of Christianity. So things were very tense. I remember many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, being in Jerusalem during the Intifada, and I could feel the danger and the tension as I walked through the old city. I remember being surrounded by groups of children who had toy guns, and they would aim them at me and say, pow, pow, pow. It was a rather gentle threat, but it felt threatening nonetheless. And maybe some of you have been in cities or in urban areas that have been on the verge of rioting. We've had some of that in our country in the last couple of years. And you can feel the anger as thick as fog in the atmosphere. Well, that's the way it was in Jerusalem. It was a powder keg. And so Paul, when he went onto the Temple Mount, that his presence there, it precipitated a riot. And people descended on him. He was in danger of being torn from limb to limb. So that's where we are. Let's pick up the story in the book of Acts, chapter 21 and verse 30. Acts 21 and verse 30. The whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple precincts, and immediately the gates were shut. Well, the temple, of course, is up on a hill, the Temple Mount, and so the crowd was pushing and shoving Paul down. Some set of stairs somewhere, and undoubtedly people were falling and fighting and tumbling around, and some were being trampled. Verse 31 says, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Well, the Roman fortress Antonia was adjacent to the north side of the Temple Mount, and so the Roman troops who were expecting constantly to be, well, they were always on the verge of expecting trouble. They mobilized very quickly. So verse 32 says, he, that is the Roman uh, commander, whose name we later learn was uh, uh, Lysias, he took at once some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. These Roman troops, they barged right into the middle of the trouble. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, probably chained on both sides to two different soldiers. Then he asked him who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some the other thing, but since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps... That is, the steps going into the fortress Antonia, uh, the, the barracks there and the uh, Roman uh, garrison. Then everybody was down below him. He was up on the steps, and the crowd kept shouting, get rid of him. It says the violence of the mob was so great that Paul had to be carried by the soldiers. And verse 37 says, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, 
And as I said, his name was Lysias, Claudius Lysias. May I say something to you? And the commander said, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian that started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So here the commander isn't sure what's going on. He doesn't realize that Paul is a Greek-speaking Jew, that he is a man of, of uh, that he is a Roman citizen and a man of great sophistication. He thinks that he is a Egyptian revolutionary, one that had been bedeviling uh, the Roman troops. And we know about this from history. I mean, what Luke wrote here in the book of Acts is confirmed by Josephus and by contempor uh, contemporaneous historical, uh, historical accounts. Josephus was a Jewish writer and historian from the first century, and he wrote about an Egyptian who led a revolt of thousands of Jewish zealous terrorists and dagger men out into the wilderness. And both Josephus and the book of Acts place this event at about A.D. 54. So it's another indication that Luke's story is historically accurate. Some Egyptian messianic-like figure massed a group of thousands of followers out in the de desert, and they were planning to attack the walls of Jerusalem and to take over so that they could resist and throw off the Romans. And this zealot, this Egyptian, told his troops that the walls of Jerusalem would collapse before them. And he led them to the Mount of Olives, and he was ready to do that. He was probably a, a Jew from Egypt, an Egyptian Jew who was a zealot and wanting to, uh, he was messianic in his thinking and wanted to throw off the yoke of Roman occupation. But the Romans took preemptive action and killed 400 of the rebels and captured another 200. Uh, but the Egyptian instigator got away. And so the commander apparently thought that Paul was this wanted outlaw, one of the most wanted men in Palestine, this Egyptian. He thought that he had captured this Egyptian. And he was surprised when Paul spoke to him with sophisticated Greek. Now, Greek was the dominant language in the West, but Aramaic was the dominant, dominant language in the Middle East and in the East. And so the commander, who probably didn't speak Aramaic, was surprised when Paul turned to him and spoke and said something in Greek. And the commander said, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian? Verse 39, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. In other words, I'm not the Egyptian. I am a Jew, a citizen of the great city of Tarsus. And then Paul said, please let me speak to the people. Let me address this mob. Paul never wanted to miss a chance of using any arena whatsoever to share the gospel of Christ. So verse 40, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And at this point, Paul's going to do something that we have not seen before in the book of Acts. He's simply going to give his testimony. He is going to tell his story. Now, so far in the book of Acts, if you've noticed, we have three of Paul's sermons recorded for us. One in his first missionary journey, one in his second missionary journey, and one in his third missionary journey. Luke is very carefully giving us a sample of Paul's preaching 
three sermons, each one in one of his missionary journeys. In his first missionary journey, Paul preached to a Jewish, to a Jewish audience, and Luke wrote it down, gave us at least a summary of it. In his second missionary journey, uh, Paul preached to a Gentile audience in Athens, and Luke gave us the summary of it. In the third missionary trip, Paul addressed the Christian church, the Ephesian elders, in Acts chapter 20, and Luke gave us a summary of it. But now, from this point on, most of the messages that Paul is going to give will be simply the sharing of his own testimony. Now, all of us who know Christ have a testimony. It may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but we have a story of what Christ has done for us and what he means for us, and we don't need to stand in front of a murderous mob. But here are our grandchildren. Here are our children. Here are the members of our ball team. Here are our friends and our co-workers in the factory and office. Here are the other students in the school. And there is a tremendous power in telling someone what Jesus means to you and what he has done for you. Whenever I've read the stories of NFL players who have come to Christ, it's usually because a Christian teammate, they were roommates together or they were teammates together, and somehow that Christian shared his testimony. We should all practice and be able to share our stories of faith whenever we have a chance. So that's what Paul does here in front of this mob. So look at chapter 22 and verse 3. He begins, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city. Now, that gives us some information that we didn't know about Paul. We call him Paul of Tarsus because he was from the great city of Tarsus. Today, we would look, locate that city along the southern coastline of modern-day Turkey. But apparently, as a child or a young person, he was brought to or sent to Jerusalem. And he grew up there. Paul's family apparently was affluent. We later learned they were Roman citizens. And they were probably in a more elite status of social uh, stratification. And they apparently had money. And they wanted Paul. He must have been brilliant even as a child. So they wanted him to have the best education of all. And the best Jewish education would be in Jerusalem. And so Paul grew up in Jerusalem, and then as a young man, he studied under Gamaliel. So let's go back to verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, the famous rabbi whom we met in Acts chapter 5. And he said, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way referring to Christianity, to their death, arresting some of the men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all of the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, the original account of Paul's conversion was told in Acts chapter 9, but here he gives us some details we didn't learn there. We learn that this incident occurred 
about noon when the sun was at its zenith. We also learn here that those who were with Paul saw the light, but they could not make out the words that Paul heard. He said, my companion saw the light, but did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Now, I'm convinced, I think it's very clear in the text, that Saul of Tarsus literally saw the Lord Jesus Christ, that the heavens were parted and the Son of God, enthroned in his brilliance, bore down on Saul. He saw Jesus for a split second, but the brilliance of the searing light radiating from Christ burned out his eyes and blinded him almost instantly. Now, I believe, based upon a lot of different scriptures, that Jesus Christ is clothed with light. He radiates light. He generates light. He is wrapped in light. This is the self-manifestation of Christ. He just is as bright, brighter than the sun. And I believe the light of Jesus provides the illumination for New Jerusalem. Now, how, if that's true, how can we ever see Jesus? Well, after the resurrection, our glorified bodies will have glorified eyes so that we can see him face to face. But on this day, on the Damascus Road, the brilliance of the person of Jesus Christ led to instant and total blindness. So Saul fell down and said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, in one sense, Paul was not literally persecuting Jesus, the body of Jesus, but in another sense, he was literally persecuting the body of Jesus because the body of Jesus, in one sense, is his church on earth. And the Lord Jesus took that very personally. When his followers are persecuted, he is being persecuted. So Saul said in verse number 10, "'What shall I do, Lord?' Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told what you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, Paul said, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Verse 12, his testimony continues. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all of the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Verse 15, You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul said in verse 17, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and to beat those who believe in you. Verse 20, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, that's as far as Paul got in this testimony. The word Gentiles was like a match thrown onto a 
pool of gasoline. And verse 22 says, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Now, remember, Lysias had probably not been able to understand a word that Paul had said in Aramaic. He was a frustrated man, not knowing what was going on, what was causing this uproar, and so he determined in Roman fashion to extract the information by torture. Verse 25 says, As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, I don't suppose there has ever been anything worse than a Roman flogging. It was far worse than anything that Paul had ever experienced, worse than the Jewish beatings that he had received in the synagogues with the 39 stripes, far worse than the whipping that he had received at Philippi. I mean, a Roman flogging was something that you typically didn't survive, or if you did survive it, you were maimed for life. So Paul was we would imagine, stripped almost bare, and his hands were tied up above his head, and he was stretched out, and the Roman whips were brought out, and they were designed to rip the flesh off of one's body in a way that just created enormous physical damage and intense pain, more pain than a person could endure. And for Paul, I don't know that he would have survived it, uh, having known what he went through in these missionary journeys. But he asserted his Roman citizenship, for Roman citizens were exempt from this kind of brutality. And it says in verse 26, when the commander heard this, he went back, or when the centurion, who was about to um, inflict this punishment, heard this, he went back to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He said, this man is a Roman citizen. Verse 27, the commander went to Paul and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he replied. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul replied, but I was born a citizen. That tells us again that Paul came from a very prominent family in Tarsus and that both of his parents had been Roman citizens. They had either purchased their citizenship or been awarded their citizenship or in some way because of their contribution to society. They, he was born into a, into a family that was marked with Roman citizenship. And so verse 29, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize what happens next. In trying to investigate the cause of all of this turmoil, Lysias assembled the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and he had Paul address them. That caused another riot, this one smaller, and inside the hall of the Sanhedrin meeting place. But Acts 23.10 says, The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and to bring him to the barracks. And then we have another visit by the Lord Jesus to Paul. Verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood near Paul, and said, Take courage. 
as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And this begins the process by which the Apostle Paul made his slow but providential journey to the center of the Roman Empire. And the story is told in the final chapter of Acts, as we'll see in coming weeks. Now, that's the story. But there is one important point of application that I want to make from this passage, and it's something that's very real to me. We'll get to that in just a moment, but first, let me take a moment and tell you about my newest book, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I hope that you'll check into this because I think it'd be a lovely gift to give to people. My publisher, Thomas uh, Nelson HarperCollins Christian Publishers, the gift division there, did a wonderful job in creating a beautiful cover, beautiful interior pages, a ribbon in it, a place where you can sign and give it to somebody. And it is simply an exegesis and application and devotional thoughts and theological insights into 52 verses from the Bible about the faithfulness of God. So check it out. It's at everywhere that books are sold, as well as on my website at robertjmorgan.com. Well, getting back to our application, as I read and studied through the passage for today, my own mind zeroed in unto the two questions that Saul of Tarsus asked Jesus when he was blinded on the Damascus Road. So let's go back and look at those in chapter 22, beginning with verse 6. Paul said, About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What shall I do, Lord? Those are the two questions. Lord, who are you, and what do you want me to do? And those questions are asked in the right order. We have to discover who Jesus is. Now, entire libraries could be filled with the books that have been written about Jesus of Nazareth. One of the first theological descriptions that we have of Jesus after the time of the apostles, after the time of the New Testament, comes from the pen of a man named Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, the very same church that sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary tour. So right after the days of the New Testament, probably in the first decade of the second century, within about 10 years of the death of the apostle John, there was this man, Ignatius. In fact, we believe that he was a disciple of John, maybe had been won to Christ by the apostle John. And as Ignatius was being transported to Rome, to be fed to the wild beast in the Colosseum, to give up his life for his faith. As Ignatius was on this journey from Antioch to Rome, he wrote a series of letters. And in one of them, he told the people he was writing to, I glorify Jesus Christ, the God, who made you so wise, for I observe that you have established an unshakable faith having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in both body and spirit, and firmly established in love by the blood of Christ, totally convinced with regard to our Lord that he was truly of the family of David with respect to his human descent, and that he was truly son of God with respect to the divine will and power, truly 
born of a virgin, baptized by John the Baptist in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled in him, truly nailed to the cross in the flesh for us in order that he might raise a banner for the ages to come through his resurrection for his saints and his faithful people. Well, that description of Jesus Christ was not written three or four hundred years after our Lord's life. It wasn't something that was formulated by creeds in the church. This was written just about the time right after the death of the Apostle John. So Jesus was understood from very early from the New Testament to be both God and man. We have to know who he is theologically, but we also have to know who he is personally because he is a real person, and we can have a personal relationship with him. Jesus wanted that with Saul. He knew all about Saul of Tarsus, even as he knows all about you. He knew Saul's failures and his strengths, even as he knows about you. And the Lord Jesus was determined to turn Paul's life around and to do something with him that would change history. And I think the same is true for you. So I would ask, do you know Jesus theologically? Do you know him to be both God and man? And do you know him personally? Lord, who are you? And that leads to the second question, what do you want me to do? Now, based on Psalm 119, verse 16, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and other verses, I have a very deep conviction that the Lord has pre-planned every day of our lives and that he assigns our work to us in one-day increments. I write about this in my book, Mastering Life Before It's Too Late. I remember last year speaking in Florida, and I said that every morning during my devotional time, I just say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I can't imagine what God would want me to do in five years or 10 years from now, but I can usually figure out with prayer and thinking what he wants me to do for today. So every morning, I prayerfully try to plan out my day and go about the Lord's business as best as I know how. So I said that to the group. And later that afternoon, I was taking a walk, and I came across a man who was wearing a Navy hat. He was an older man, 80 or 81 years old, I think he said, and he was a veteran. And he paused and he said, you told me something today that I'd never thought about before in my whole life. I had never thought about asking the Lord in the morning, Lord, what do you want me to do today? He said, that seems like the most obvious question and beginning tomorrow. I'm going to wake up every morning and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do today? Well, I would suggest that for you as well. The best kind of life on earth is knowing who Jesus is and what he wants us to do today. Those were Paul's two great questions. He shouted them out as best he could to that crowd in Jerusalem. They didn't seem to listen to him, but you and I can, and it will make all the difference. Well, we'll pick up the story in the book of Acts there next week. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out all of the resources we have at robertjmorgan.com as well as on my social media sites. And check out the trip to Israel and also the book I mentioned, Great is Thy Faithfulness. This podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. And the music is by Elijah Rowe. And may the Lord bless you richly and be with you until we meet again.